person we're going to be talking about today is uh, John Newton. And John Newton is probably one of uh, the most well-known uh, Christians of all time, but very few people, I mean, most people would know something little about him, but his whole story is, is quite amazing. And so I'm going to share his story with you today. So John Newton was born in England in uh, 1725, so a very long time ago. And he was born uh, near London on, uh, on the River Thames. Um, and he was a, the son of a sea captain. His father was um, a very well-known sea captain, not a very wealthy one or anything, but he was very well-known. He was a good sea captain. He wasn't particularly well-respected because he was a very, very harsh man. And John grew up in a family where um, his father was absent for months at a time. And he lived just him and his mother alone. And they actually dreaded when uh, the sea captain, the old sea captain, would come home after a voyage. They, they didn't like to see him. Um, he was very, very harsh with his son. And um, he was extremely strict. And John Newton, um, his, his mother, however, was completely different to his father. And it was interesting what, how, they, how they came together. But uh, his mother was a very religious person. She was a very gentle person. She kept to herself a lot. And she and John spent many sort of uh, spent a lot of time together. And she would, although she wasn't hugely educated herself, she passed on everything she knew to her young son. One thing she certainly passed on was her um, her religious feeling. We don't know too much about her, but she was a deeply religious woman, and she really wanted her son to, well, she actually really didn't want her son to follow the way of his father and become a sailor and a sea captain. He really didn't want that. She didn't want that. She wanted her son to uh, perhaps be a clergyman or something like that. And she was very deeply religious and would always take John to the chapel, the local chapel, and together they would walk there. And uh, there, the young John Newton learnt so many things about the Bible and and uh, at this particular chapel, they, they were starting to sing quite modern hymns, you know, hymns that had been written year, maybe a year or only months before. Um, and John loved these beautiful hymns. They were very different to the old hymns that, uh, you know, used to be sung at most Church of England churches. They were melodious and they, they just captured his imagination. Um, the, the pastor at his chapel was very good friends with one of these hymn writers who was writing these hymns. And that hymn writer was uh, Isaac Watts. He was at the neighbouring chapel down the road in the next town. And he'd just written a hymn called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Young Prince of Glory Died. And John, when you know that hymn was shared with the congregation, he, those words and the, the song really stuck with him. And he really loved just going to the chapel and just hearing these, this music. He had a very good life with his mother, and he just learned how to keep out of the way of his father. All things changed when he was only six years old. When he was six, he had no idea, but his mother was actually very, very sick. And that's perhaps why she kept to herself a lot. And uh, he didn't know, but uh, she was actually dying. And... Uh, there came a day where a distant relative came to the home, and um, I've forgotten how to do this. <laughs> and um, this distant relative came and took the mother and said that she perhaps needed a little bit of fresh air and countryside air, and that might make her feel better. And uh, John didn't really understand this, but actually this distant relative was taking his mother away because they didn't want John to see her die. And he had no idea, and he was actually hoping that uh, she would come back in a few weeks for his seventh birthday. But she never came back, and he got a message from a family friend that she had died in the home of this distant cousin in the countryside. And John was heartbroken. At this particular time, his father was out at sea, so he, was stay, he had to stay with a neighbour. And there he was, and he had no way, of course, they had no way of communicating with the father in these days. So he was staying there with the neighbour. He'd just lost his mother, and he had no father. And he found it very difficult to cope. To make matters worse, um, when the captain returned, and he walked up these very stairs up into the town of Woping, where they lived, 
and he'd returned from his months at sea. Uh, the, the captain came to the house and he saw that it was boarded up. He saw that there was black hung in the, in the, in the, in the windows. And he went next door and he saw his son and his son was dressed in the usual black. And the sea captain understood what had happened. And he said to John, do not cry, be a man. And so John wasn't even allowed to cry. And he, he to rub salt into a wound, the old captain went and found another woman and got married very, very soon after. This young stepmother of John didn't really uh, care for him that much. She, she wasn't interested in him. And so this young boy, John Newton, ended up growing up uh, fairly unloved and uh, in the home of these, uh, this other family. He was left to his own devices a lot of the time, and so he started to get into trouble. And his father was away so often that he really had no guidance in his life. And so he guided his own life, and he just did whatever pleased him. He was sent to boarding school for a while. He got into a lot of trouble there, but he did get an education. And he learned to read, he learned to write, he learned mathematics. And uh, although he was so often in trouble, and it was a very, very, he, he really hated it, it was something that he uh, looked back on and was glad for in later years. Um, but on his 11th birthday, his father took him out of school and said, you're old enough, you now need to leave school and you need to come with me, you need to learn to be a sailor because you're going to become a sea captain like me and continue the tradition of our family. And so at 11 years old, he was put onto a boat and he was learnt the ways of a sailor. Now, there was one incident in his childhood, actually there were a few, but I'm just going to tell you about one that really had a very big impact on him. Uh, when he was probably around 10 or so, there was a warship that came in and sort of anchored in uh, just uh, in, in the river. And he could see it and all the other boys could see it and they were all excited about it. And one of the watermen, the people who ferry the um, goods and so on from the ships to the shore, uh, had promised the young boys that he would take them on a rowboat and they could go up really close to this warship and they'd be able to you know, climb on it, touch it and go around it and all that kind of thing. And John was really looking forward to this and it was going to happen on a Sunday afternoon. And so he, uh, he was sat at the, in, his, in the church listening to the sermon and the sermon was going on a bit and he was getting restless. And then he had to go home and they had to uh, sit and, and eat their dinner. And in those days, children were not allowed to do anything unless they were dismissed. And so his father was not dismissing him and he had to sit there and wait. And he was getting more and more angsty and, and restless because he thought, you know, I'm meant to be there, I'm meant to see this ship and we were going. And finally his father dismissed him and said he could go and he ran. He had three kilometres to run to get to the place where the watermen would take them to see the, the army ship. And so he, uh, he got there, and just as he got there, the watermen had already sort of taken off. And his best friends were in the ship, and they laughed at him and said, you're too late. And he stood there on the shore, and he was fuming. He was so angry. He was angry that he had missed it. His father had delayed at dinner. The sermon went too long, and he was so angry. And as he stood there fuming, he watched, and the rowboat was almost out to where the warship was. But just before it got there, it hit something that was hidden under the water and the whole boat flipped and sunk. And everybody who was in that boat was, of course, flipped out, but the boat sort of sunk on top of them and they all drowned. And Newton stood on the shore and watched his best friends drown. And he was so shaken by this because he, he really knew, even though he was only 10 at the time, that he had been spared. Had he arrived two minutes earlier, he too would have been drowned that day. So this incident really, really had a deep impression on him. And it wasn't the only incident like this. When he was a child, there were a couple of other things that happened where he was this close to death. And as a young child, he remembered those moments and felt like he was being spared. Now, when he went to the funeral um, for his friends, he actually, he actually repented. He knew he was a bad boy. He knew he was a bit wild. And he repented, and he decided that he would 
read devotionals and say prayers every night. And although he did this for a while, it actually did nothing to change his behaviour. Now, his father, now I'm going to skip ahead to when he was about 17 years old now. His father was an influential sea captain, as I've said. And uh, his father wanted his son to, to be a good sailor as well. So he used his influence in the industry to try and get John a, a sort of a good job. And he introduced John to a captain called Captain Manistee. And this captain was a very, very wealthy man. And because they, you know, this Captain Manistee and then the old John's father, they knew each other, this man said, all right, you know, I'll do you a favour. I'll take your son on and he can, you know, learn the ways. And um, he, can, he can sort of be, I'll, I will teach him and, and he will, I'll look after him. And this was a really wonderful opportunity. And uh, the Captain Manistee, his job was, he was a slave trader. Now, at this time, in the 1700s, England was involved in what was called the transatlantic slave trade. What they did was the boats would leave England, travel down the coast of Africa, and literally uh, pick up native Africans and hold them captive. They actually thought they were like possessions. And then they would sail the way to Jamaica and coast of uh, America and sell these slaves, and then go back to England. This was the lucrative slave trade. And Captain Manistee was a very wealthy slave trader. And he told the young John Newton, who was 17 at this time, and he had already sort of learned a little bit about sailing, he said to him, you know, if you are clever, and if you are um, hardworking, then before you're 30, you will be so wealthy, you could probably earn like a whole estate, you could probably buy an estate, and even buy your way into Parliament. And so this was sort of something that even the old captain wanted for John, and this sounded really good to John Newton as well. So this prospect of learning under Captain Manistee and becoming a slave trader, it was something that was a huge career opportunity, and the old sea captain was very eager that his son embraced this. However, at that very, very time, John received a letter. In fact, it was a week before he was meant to leave to go with Captain Manistee on this first journey, on this first voyage. And this letter was from that distant relative who had cared for John's mother in her last days. And this uh, distant relative wrote to him and said, you know, he, that uh, would he come and call on them? And he sort of looked at this letter and thought, ah. Uh, you know, what's this all about? But then, because he, he really loved his mother, he, he thought you know, he, he would do that. So three days before the ship was due to leave, he rode all the way to Kent, the countryside, and uh, he called in on this family. They were sort of quite distant relatives. And uh, there he met the eldest daughter of this family, whose name was Polly, and 17-year-old Newton was completely love-struck by Polly, who was a couple of years younger. And he fell instantly in love and became very awkward. And uh, he, he was intending just to call on them and, and stay for one night, but one night turned into three weeks. And he completely missed the voyage that was going to embark him on this, on this huge career of being a slave trader. He was so love-struck by Polly he didn't even notice. Well, by the time he did, and it was three weeks, and the family had no idea that he had other uh, duties to fulfil, um, he was so scared of leaving because he thought, if I go back, and my father you know, will obviously know that I've missed the voyage, uh, he, he couldn't even bear to think what would happen to him. But he did, of course, have to go back at some point. And, of course, his father had already found out from this very angry Captain Manistee that he had not turned up for duty and he had not turned up and that ship had had to leave without him. And the father actually thought that John had been killed somewhere on, by highwaymen on the road between London and Kent and he was, like, you know, wanting to send out search parties. And so when John returned and said, sorry, I accidentally stayed too long, his father blew up and was so angry with him that he said, that's it. You have completely ruined this opportunity that I have lined up for you. 
this is your punishment. And uh, the old captain sent John Newton on a ship. This ship was destined for the Middle East. And he, he sent him on as the lowest of the lowest of all the sailors. And he wasn't to be paid. And so John Newton was uh, shoved onto this ship and had to <coughs> sail and, and do all the really dirty jobs of um, a, a sailor. And uh, he did, perhaps, maybe, or I actually don't think, he learned his lesson, but he did learn a whole lot of other things. You see, prior to this time, John Newton had still held on to some of those religious foundations that his mother had given him in, in those early years. But that experience on the ship that was destined for the Middle East really changed him because he learned the way of the sailor. He saw the immediate pleasures, the fact that they were free. Sailors were rough, rough people. He learned to swear. He was smoking. He was drinking. He did everything that everybody else did. And he learned how instant gratification was a life of uh, freedom and pleasure. And he, he liked this. And so instead of perhaps learning his lesson, he learned that he wanted to live in this way, free of all the bounds of society, of morals and rules and laws. And here on the open ocean, they could do what they liked. And he liked that. So the other thing he really liked was the fact that he could see the world. And so he actually decided that he would, he would sign up for this life as a sailor in one way or another. And one day, he was uh, at Venice, actually, at the, at the port there, and he was... Um, he was just sleeping, and he had a very interesting dream. And he knew at the time, because this dream stuck with him for a long time, he knew that it wasn't just an ordinary dream. There was something unusual about it. This was his dream. A man came to him and gave him a ring and said to him, keep this ring with you. Because if you cast it away from you, you will have nothing but misery in your life. Keep it well. Then that man went away. A second man came, and John had the ring still in his hand. And the second man asked what it was, and he explained, and he said that I, I must keep it well. And the second man mocked him and said, Do you really believe that that ring is something that you need to keep? Why? Cast it away from you. It means nothing. And gradually the little seeds of doubt, the little slow poison, the drip of slow poison worked and John Newton started to sort of release the grip of that ring. And then finally this second man, through this, the constant talk and the constant doubts, made him throw the ring into the sea. And the minute the ring landed in the sea, um, a, a, a mountain in the distance burst into flame. And John Newton heard these words. All the mercies of God were in that ring, and you have willfully thrown it from you. So that fire is for you. And then Newton became very scared in his dream. But a third man came, and this third man said to him, Where is your ring? And he said, I've, I've cast it away. And the third man dived into the sea and retrieved the ring. And he came to Newton, but he said to Newton, you cannot hold this ring anymore, but I will keep it for you. And then Newton woke up. He didn't understand what it meant, but it was a dream that he remembered, and it actually made him feel quite scared. And again, he thought about his life, which had taken a very deep downhill turn, and again he thought, I better start saying prayers. But it did nothing to change his behaviour. Now, the life of a sailor was very difficult. They were sent on voyages for months at a time. Sometimes they were away for one month, sometimes nine. And then they would come back sometimes for one week, sometimes for three months. It was a very sort of a life that sort of had no real routine. But once he was back in England over the Christmas period and he was there for a couple of weeks. And, uh, of course, he, he, he was very much in love with Polly still. And he really wanted to go and see her again. But his father said, don't go. Because at that very time in England, there was uh, the stirrings of war. And at that point, there were these people, there were press gangs. Press gangs were people who actually were looking for um, people to conscript into the army. 
Yeah. And these uh, press gangs would literally go through, particularly sea towns and around the, um, the sea areas, and they would actually look for people who they thought might have had sailing experience and actually almost like kidnap them and force them into the Navy. The, the reason was that no one ever volunteered to go into the Navy. It was seen as worse than prison. It was a horrible, horrible job. And uh, so they actually had to find criminals who were already convicted and they actually sentenced them to life in Navy or um, actually just find people and, and force them to join. These were the press gangs. And uh, his father had told him that there was a press gang around and that he was not to go to visit Polly because he would be taking these main roads and that he would, he would definitely be caught. But of course Newton, and this characterised Newton, he was very impulsive, he did not listen to anybody, he did not listen particularly, he didn't listen to his father, and he decided that he would hang it all and just do it. And so he, he took the road and he walked to his beloved Polly and of course walked straight into a press gang. And they caught him. They recognised, they knew his walk. The sailor's walk was quite unique. They uh, picked him up. He tried to lie his way out of it, saying, I know nothing about the sea. But then, you know, they, they, they knew, somebody knew him and he, he, he was caught. His father tried to intervene. His father came and tried his best to intervene on his behalf. But uh, his, uh, once they knew that his father was the old captain, uh, they, they said, no, we're having your son because they knew that Newton would have more than just a little bit of sea knowledge. He would actually be quite useful. And so he was pressed into the Navy. And he joined the HMS Harwick. And life in the Navy was extremely hard. They had this idea in those days that the way um, you would ensure that sailors did everything you command was by breaking them, breaking their spirit, so that in the event of war, they, would, they, would, they wouldn't sort of desert. That was the idea. And so, you know, the life of a sailor was uh, starvation. They were severely rationed. The food was terrible. They were um, often confined under the deck. They were chained. The punishments were horrible. And uh, they, they lived in constant fear, constant fear. And so this was, uh, this was the life that John Newton now had. Uh, not only that, but the other people around him. You know, he had been amongst sailors. Sailors were the roughest of the rough. But now, the people he was around now, convicted criminals, uh, people, actually, some families would uh, send their disobedient sons. When they couldn't control their, their sons, they would actually send them to the Navy. So the people that were there were criminals. These uh, people who had failed in their life, uh, these sons that were sort of disowned by their families and people who were pressed into it by the press gangs. This was the crew of a Navy ship. And these were the people that Newton was surrounded by. And this hardened him. It made him um, very resentful. And he, this was now his life. Captain Carteret was the captain of this particular ship. And he recognised very quickly that Newton had quite a few talents. He was very experienced. And so he promoted Newton. Uh, he wasn't just an ordinary Navy man. He, was, he became <coughs> higher. Now, you would think Newton would actually kind of use that power to, um, you know, for good, but he didn't. He was very resentful and, and because of the way he had been treated by his, his superiors, he decided that he would be worse. So he lorded it over the people that he used to sort of be equal with and he made their life twice as difficult as it was before. He was hated by everybody, but he didn't care. And he, he really sort of loved this idea of being able to um, destroy other people's lives and make them miserable. That was the person he was. At this time, he had a friend by the name of Mitchell. And the two of them, you know, because Newton was such a blasphemer and he would always... Um, he was just one of the roughest of the rough. These two, you know, started talking. And Mitchell started talking to Newton about the fact that really, there is no God. That, you know, all this stuff that, you know, our society is talking about, the church, <coughs> God, it's all rubbish. You've got to remember at this time, everyone believed in God. Whether they were real Christians or not, it was a, it was a given even, you know, the parliament was based on, on the Bible. It was, the Bible was really central to, to society in England. But this man was quite different. And Newton started to listen to him. 
and it was as if the drip of poison started to have an impact. You know, Mitchell used to quote philosophers and he would say things like, whatever is, is right. Whatever you want, that, that's what right is. It's not laws, it's not morals, it's whatever makes you happy. Just go and do it. And so Newton liked this idea of true freedom and he embraced this idea that there is no God and he, in a sense, plucked off the ring of his conscience and all of the foundations that his mother had laid in his early life and he willfully cast it from him. Now, at that time even, Newton wasn't even convinced by himself. He, although he embraced atheism, and he decided that there was no God and he would live this way. He was not settled within himself. But instead of sorting that out, what he did was try and convert other people. He, he, he found this man by the name of Job Lewis, another sailor. And this sailor has also been sort of pressed into the Navy like him. And he was quite religious. And he would, uh, he, you know, he, he, had, he was holding on to religion and Newton took him as a target and started to sort of talk to him and say, you know, you're stupid, you're so stupid with your beliefs. There is no God, there is no God, there is no God. And soon Job Lewis also started to leave behind his, his belief about the Lord, the Bible, and embraced atheism. And this somehow made Newton feel powerful and justified in his new beliefs. However, when he was on duty at night, and when he was on the deck and he was surrounded by the endless ocean and he could see all the stars, he often was very scared. And he hated those duties when he was out there at night on his own because something didn't sit right. And sometimes when he was out there on the deck and he could see all the stars, he would remember the words of Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Young Prince of Glory Died. And those lines kept playing in his head and he used to shut, try to shut them out. But those lines kept playing and it, he, he wrote later, if only this young prince of glory would leave me alone. Now, he spent a while at the Navy and life was very difficult for him, of course. He became a really hardened, uh, but particularly despicable man he was not nice at all. And uh, there was one opportunity, and uh, as I told you before, he was very impulsive. Once, Captain Carteret sent him, they were actually in England, and he sent him to get fresh supplies. They were to take the empty um, barrels, they were going to go to the shore, they were going to get those barrels filled and bring it back to the ships. And he was going to be in charge of some men to do this. And so he went to uh, the port and uh, they, you know, all the, the busyness was happening and he thought, this is my opportunity. And he knew where he was in England and he knew that he could, only, he could if uh, he could, it was possible for him to walk all the way to where his father was. And then he thought, maybe, uh, maybe we can, I can get out of the Navy forever somehow. And so as everyone was busy, he slipped away. He walked confidently through the town like he was on an errand of some sort. And once he was out of the town, he kept walking and he, he went on the... He knew where he was going. He avoided the, the towns. He went around towns. He slept outside that night. He avoided the inns. He took other roads. And soon he was many kilometres away from where he was meant to be. Um, and he thought to himself, you know, I've done it. I've done it. I'm out. But just as he took a main road... And he was two hours, two hours walk from where his father was. He walked straight into a group of marines, soldiers, who were looking for deserters. And there he was alone on the road and they were walking towards him. They'd seen him. He couldn't run. He couldn't do anything. And he tried to bluff his way out of it, but he had no baggage. He, the clothes he was wearing gave him away. Uh, he had no paperwork on him. And they just took him and marched him the 40 kilometres back to Plymouth, which is where he was meant to be. And all the way back, Newton thought to himself, what is my punishment going to be? In those days, if you deserted, you were hanged. It was a death sentence. Um, sometimes, depending, the captains might have spared you, but the punishments were severe. Now, Captain Carteret had known 
had known that, uh, that uh, he had deserted. And, of course, when he came back, he was so angry that uh, he said to him, you know, this is it. He stripped him of all his title and all his uh, promotions and all that, and he uh, chained him up in the bottom of the ship. And then when everyone had come back to the ship and they were ready to set sail again, um, and when they were in the middle of their journey, he got him up, um, stripped him naked, paraded him around, and then they flogged him. Um, and in those days, you know, the flogging was horrible. And he got 24 lashes. Well, we think he did. Um, that was the, the average. He may have gotten more than that. But 24 was the amount before you were permanently disabled. That was kind of the, the way it was. And, you know, he, uh, he suffered this. And uh, then he was sent back to work immediately with his back still sort of bleeding. This didn't make him repent. It made him angry. And he was so full of hate at this point that he was plotting the murder of the captain and he was trying to work out how he could murder him and then commit suicide. He thought, you know, there is no God, there's no judge, I'm the judge of me. And so he felt that he was completely justified. And he was, he, people described him like a wounded cat. People tried to offer him kindness and he would lash out at them. He was... He had completely been totally ruined by the hatred and the anger that he held inside. Something else happened. Another coincidence. Seems like in Newton's life there were many sort of close calls and little coincidences that happened. This was another. One day he had slept through the uh, gong that woke them all up and the midshipman had come down because he hadn't presented for duty and he saw that he was still lying in his hammock and he literally just cut down the hammock with a knife and Newton fell to the ground on his still raw back and the midshipman was turned to leave and Newton could hear that there was something going on on the deck and so he called after the midshipman and said, what's happened? And the midshipman said, oh, another ship has passed by. They're looking for two crew. And Newton, again, being impulsive, gathered all this stuff put it into a bundle and said, here's my opportunity. I need to convince the captain that I'm going to be one of those crew that's going on to this other ship. He had no idea what this other ship was or where it was going, but he thought, this is my way out. Now, this often happened when two ships passed because people died on voyages. Sometimes they would try and trade crew or get crew and, and so on. So this is what had happened. And one person had already been chosen and was already climbing down the side of the ship and John Newton came up to Captain Carteret and begged him and said, send me away, send me to this other ship. And the captain was so happy to get rid of him because he was such a nuisance. And perhaps also this captain had got wind of a murder plot. And so the captain said, get out. And so with those words, Newton climbed out of the Navy and he didn't know it, but he joined a slave trader. And there he was on this ship. He didn't even know where it was going, what it was doing. He didn't know anything. But when he got onto the ship and he said who he was, the captain was shocked and said, are you not Captain Newton's son? And John said, well, yes, I am. And this captain, who was the captain of, it was a, a ship destined for Guinea, um, said, oh, I know your father. And then that, that worked very well in John Newton's favour. You know, this, this man treated him well. He, he was the son of a good friend and a respected, you know, sea captain. And so, you know, John Newton thought, got it, I've done well here. Um, he had no idea what was happening, but he soon learnt that he was on a ship destined for the coast of Africa and he was going probably down to Guinea or um, Sierra Leone, those areas of Africa. And in, in this ship actually had slaves on board. They would, they would take slaves in, chain them up in the lower deck, and they would send and sell them in Jamaica and so on. And this was a horrible, horrible business. But you need to remember that in the 1700s, this slave trade had not been questioned by anyone, <coughs> including the church. And no one had questioned it because it was the backbone of the economy of England and many other countries. Not one person in the, even, even the church had questioned it at this point. And of course, uh, John Newton, it was actually, um, and John Newton knew this, it was a gentleman's trade. 
It was actually a respected career. And it was horrible. The people were chained up, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was disgusting because the sailors were allowed to do whatever they wanted with those slaves. And so the women were raped, the men were badly treated. They, could, they, they treated them as um, possession. So if there was a slave that was perhaps not was, uh, answering back or doing something, they could kill them, it didn't matter. But they cho- often chose not to because that would mean they lose a bit of money. But that was the only reason. So this slave trade was what Newton suddenly, just out of coincidence, became involved in. And uh, instead of uh, treating his uh, new position as, an, as a wonderful opportunity and a, a change, instead he was still the angry and hateful man that he was uh, before. And in fact, the captain became quite angry with him and said, the only reason I tolerate you and don't cast you out is because I know your father. And John Newton took great advantage of that. In fact, he fouled the other, sol- the other sailors. That's how bad he was. He would mock the Gospels. He would, he, would, um, he would mimic anybody who had any sort of skerrick of religion. He promoted this atheism and freedom and loose living to everybody. And he was a, such a corrupting influence, even amongst these sailors, that the captain... Um, found it very, very difficult to tolerate him. He had drunken tempers and he was always in fights and quarrels. And particularly with the second in charge, they did not get on. But he didn't care because he knew he had the captain under his thumb because the captain was friends with his father, so it didn't matter. However, one night, the captain died. He probably had a heart attack or something. He just died. And suddenly, everything changed for Newton because that second in charge became the captain. And that second in charge had no connection to John Newton's father and didn't know him. And so, and now he was in charge and now he could do what he liked with Newton. And Newton realised he was in danger. He thought, you know, some accident might happen and I might be killed. That's how bad it was. And so, you know, John thought to himself, I've got to do something, I've got to get out of here. And so again, he was trying to work out how he could leave this ship and somehow um, get out of this situation. An opportunity came. They pulled up in Sierra Leone, and there on the coast was uh, uh, what they had were these sort of factories where Englishmen uh, would actually set up like a storehouses and, and so on, and they would live there and they would help with the trade. And there was a man, a businessman, a slave trader by the name of Clow, who had set up shop on the coast of Sierra Leone and uh, Newton offered himself and said I'll come and I'll stay and I'll live here and help you and the second in charge, the the captain of the ship was so happy to get rid of him he just sort of said you you take this guy and so Clow, this businessman ended up taking Newton and Newton ended up staying on the coast of Africa in Sierra Leone and there he was And he used this opportunity, he thought, this is where I can make my money. And so he was a very shrewd businessman. And he worked hard, and together they actually made a bit of an empire, building trade houses, storehouses, making trips inland, getting the slaves, trading things uh, with the local tribes, and selling it to the passing ships. Clow married, well, not particularly married, I think he just got um, a local princess from a tribe. And this woman was actually a very, very clever woman. She picked up the European ways and the culture very quickly, but she had a great dislike for Newton, and she was a manipulative lady. And Newton and Clow shared the profits, and she didn't like that. One day, uh, Newton fell sick with a fever, and he was meant to go with Clow and to another trip inland to, to get more slaves, but he couldn't. He had to stay behind, so Clow went. And the princess seized her opportunity. She saw that he was weak and helpless, and so she moved him out of his comfortable home that he'd built himself and put him into the storehouse where they actually kept some chained-up slaves. He put him in the, she put him in there. She uh, made sure that he had very little food. He just got a tiny ration of boiled rice, and sometimes she would send in the half-eaten scraps from her own plate. And she uh, told all the other slaves who worked for Clough, 
to treat him badly. They used to pelt him with stones. And whenever he would crawl outside to try and drink some, some water from, that, had, that had formed in puddles from rain, they would, uh, they, would try and, they would kick him and mimic him. And the agony of this, he was weak, he was sick, he was starving. And the worst agony for him, though, was the fact that he was being treated like this by the slaves themselves. He felt like he was now a slave of the slaves. He was brought that low. Now, when Clow returned, um, he did a very silly thing. He complained. He said, your woman here treated me so badly and, you know, I, I, I've had to sleep here. And, of course, the princess was smarter than this and manipulated the situation, turned it all around, and soon Clow believed that Newton had been cheating him and lying and stealing and all these sorts of things. And in a drunken rage one day, Clow... Um, you know, accused him of everything and Newton denied everything but Klaus said that's it and he chained him up and he put uh, iron fetters on his feet so he, he had to drag around chains all the time and he forced him to work in the plantations alongside the other slaves. And so here was Newton on the coast of Africa. His father had no idea where he was. Nobody had any idea where he was. He was at the mercy of this ruthless businessman and his manipulative wife. And here he was, stuck in a plantation, uh, working like a slave amongst slaves. And he thought, he actually thought to himself at the time, I deserve this. But even that thought didn't make him repent. He just became more bitter. At the time, as a picture of the remnants of the slave trade on the coast of Africa. At the time, one of the slaves actually felt sorry for him and supplied him with some writing material. And he thought to himself, this is a long shot, but I'm going to write to my father and see if he can do something. So he wrote to his father. And then many weeks later, when a ship came by, another slave took the letter and got it onto the ship. And perhaps it would have reached his father. And if it did, it would have taken months and months and months. But he thought, long shot, let's see. At this time, he also had one book. It happened to be a geometry book. And with this one book, he kept his sanity during this time by learning geometry. And he would draw diagrams in the sand. He, would, he learned about angles, he learned everything. He just studied this book. Now, another chance. A slave trader had come to the area, another slave trader, and was meeting with Clough, and he noticed in the fields that there was a white man working amongst all these slaves. And not only that, but he sort of kept an eye out, and then later on that evening, he saw Newton drawing in the sand, and he went over and had a look and saw this geometry. And so he went to Clough and said, that, that man you got over there, I want him. And Clow was very happy to get rid of him because Clow was really hoping that Newton would die and Newton was refusing to die. So he was very, very happy for um, him to take Newton. And so this, uh, this other trader got Newton, got rid of the chains and fed him and clothed him. And suddenly Newton found himself from the lowest of the low, he had been elevated again. And so together with this other trader, they moved up the coast and did the same thing. They set up their business. And Newton was shrewd. He was smart. He knew what he was doing. And they made a very prosperous business together. Soon, Newton had his own. He, he made himself an empire. And he began to, to think that this was going to be his life. He pretty much renounced England. And even though he still loved Polly, he thought to himself, there's no way she'll take me now. I, you know, my life has been such that there's no, I can't even think of it. And so there he was. He had his empire. He became quite wealthy. He was a very good trader. He was a shrewd businessman. He set up this empire and he decided that he liked even the African way of life. He started to be interested in voodoo. He started to take on the local customs. He would look at the charms and amulets and he started to embrace all of this. And he thought to himself, this is now my life here on the coast of Africa, and this is what my life will be. 
Um, however, he had completely forgotten about that letter. And of course, uh, that letter made it all the way to England and into the hands of the old captain. And when the captain read it, he went straight to action. That very day, he went down and he met with another, another captain, a captain of a ship called the Greyhound. And he said to this captain, um, you know, you need to, uh, are you going this way? You need to follow up. I, I will pay you anything. Find my son and bring him back to England. If you travel down the coast, wherever you stop, or ask for the name of John Newton. And the captain agreed. They were good friends. He needed to do a favour. And, of course, the money was, was good too. And so they, he travelled. This captain travelled with his, the Greyhound, which was another slave trading ship. And they, he went uh, down the coast and he asked and people said, oh, he was here, but no, he's not here anymore. And Newton at that time was uh, far up the coast, far away from Clough and all of that, had set up his empire. And at that very, on that very moment when the Greyhound was passing, he had actually decided to go inland and do a trip to find more slaves. But he didn't have enough stuff. He didn't have enough stuff to trade. So he said to his men, right, well, this is, this is a bit of a, a long shot, but we'll go to the beaches, we'll wait, wait one more day. And if a ship passes by, we'll, we'll signal them down and see what they've got. So we need more things if we go inland. And so they were waiting at this beach on the coast there. And they were waiting on, this, on an island. And uh, soon enough, a ship did pass by. And so one of his men sent up a smoke signal and the ship returned the signal. And the, one of the men sailed out and uh, this ship, which was the Greyhound, um, they, they talked and so on. And then the captain said, oh, and by the way, have you, uh, do you know of a man by the name of John Newton? And this man was very surprised and said, oh, he's just on the shore. And the captain was also very surprised. He, he just, you know, sailed up the coast and almost given up. He, he thought, you know, Newton wasn't there anymore. And it was a bit of a long shot anyway. So he was so shocked by this coincidence that he got into the rowboat, sailed onto the shore, and there Newton was waiting. And so this captain said to him, you have to come with me. I'm going to take you back to England. And Newton was sort of very shocked by this. And then, of course, the story came out and the, the letter and his father. And, and suddenly Newton realised how much of his life had changed in only just a few months. And he said to this captain, no, I'm not going back. This is my home. I've set up my But What do you want me to do? Walk away from all of this. And the captain thought, here, I'm standing face to face with this man. I'm not going to just say, OK, and go off to back to England. So he uh, begged him, and then he made up a story about an old relative that had died, and so leaving an inheritance of a 400 pounds or something. Um, and then said, you know, and, and if you come on the journey, then I will treat you as a passenger, and you will you'll dine at my table, and you will not need to do any work on the ship, and, and all of this. And Newton didn't believe any of it. But at that moment he remembered Polly and being the impulsive man he was he thought maybe just maybe I can meet her again and maybe she'll take me and so for reasons he, he really even didn't understand at the time he said all right I'll go and all his men were shocked you know that they were like well, what and he gathered all these things took a boat out got onto the Greyhound and was sailing back to England leaving everything behind. And uh, this, uh, again, was one of those moments in his life where even he didn't really know what he was doing. Now, at this, uh, on the Greyhound, the captain was true to his word. He didn't make Newton work. He was a passenger. He dined at the table and, and so on. And Newton could have made himself so useful. He could navigate. He, could, he knew about trading. He knew about the, this whole area. He knew this, this route that they were taking. He, was, he knew everything about ships. He could have been helpful, but he made every effort to be as unhelpful as possible until the captain totally regretted taking this man on board. He was idle, he was lazy, he fouled and corrupted all the crew. He would make up rude songs and poems about the captain. He, would, he, was, he was a despicable, hard and uh, just really corrupt man. And his influence was huge on the crew. And the captain uh, just 
kept him and tolerated it out of the respect for his father and probably also in the hope of a great reward from the father as well. Now, in his idleness, John Newton was picking up some books. Um, He had nothing to do for months on end. And he picked up a book once and he was flipping it open. It was some sort of philosophy book. And he just flipped it open. And he uh, read the top line of the page, which said, Today the man is vigorous and flourishing. Tomorrow he is cut down, withered and gone. Stupid, unthinking sinner, how wilt thou escape the terrors of that dreadful day? He put the book down and shut it immediately. But those lines somehow resonated with him. And he had a thought, what if I'm wrong? And suddenly he thought to himself, he had based his whole life on the fact that he was judge. He was in charge and in control. And there was no greater. There was no God. And that little seed of doubt, what if I'm wrong, made him feel very unsettled. But he cast it away from himself and he blocked it out and he said, I've made my decision, I will bear the consequences like a man. And he slept very soundly that night. But the Lord wasn't finished with John Newton. In the middle of the night, he woke to water in his cabin and screams and cries. And he jumped out and he realised that this boat was tilting in every direction. In the middle of the night, there was a huge storm and the ship was being tossed like a matchbox on on waves. And people were screaming, we're sinking, we're sinking. And when he got up to the deck and he looked, the sails were in shreds. uh, And he was about to climb the rigging, a ladder um, on the top of the ship. And he started to climb and the captain said, get down, you need to go down, get me a knife. So Newton jumped off that rigging and he went downstairs and he, he down into the basement of the ship and he got a knife and then he came back up to the captain and, the, and just as he did that he saw another man who had taken his place and was halfway up the rigging and suddenly a wave came and knocked that man off the rigging and he fell into the sea and obviously was gone. And that really impressed Newton again. Yet again he had been spared. It could have been him up there seconds earlier and yet he had been spared. And all that night he worked on the pumps. The, the, the ship was, was, had cracked and there were parts that were, it were flooding with water and they were constantly on pumps trying to pump out the water and keep the thing afloat. And all that night as he worked in the freezing cold, he started to remember things. He started to remember some of the things that his mother had taught him. And he he'd really tried to block it out. But people were starting to say, what is it to die? What will it be like to die? Because these sailors knew there was very little hope. And as daylight came, the storm hadn't ceased. The the waves were still really high. And they realised that they had lost so much of their food. And their sails were in shreds, which meant that they they could hardly move. And uh, the the boat itself, the ship itself, was so ruined. And they, they really thought there was very little hope. And Newton had a few ideas and he talked to the captain. And after he told the captain what he thought, he said, and if that doesn't work, the Lord have mercy on us. And Newton was shocked by his words. And then he thought to himself, the Lord have mercy on us? What mercy could there be for me? And then he started to remember again all those things from early on in his childhood. And he remembered suddenly a proverb It was Proverbs 1. Then they shall call on me and I will not answer. They shall seek me early and they shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. That whole proverb came to him quite suddenly after many, many years. And and, uh, this hardened, bold, brash and hugely corrupt man suddenly quivered in the face of death. And for the first time, he dreaded death. And he started consciously trying to recall anything he could that his mother had taught him. And then again, he remembered the lines of that hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the young Prince of Glory died. And for the first time, he wished that it would be true. Well, after many days, 
they finally saw land. And the ship, the, the sailors yelled out, land ahoy, land ahoy. And they celebrated. They had only one week's worth of food and finally they'd seen land. It was very close. And so they ate all their bread, the last bits of bread, and they drank all the brandy, and they talked about the beds and blankets and all the comforts of a hot meal. But then the sea fog, because it was just sea fog, cleared, and they realised it was a mirage. And actually, they were in the middle of nowhere still. Now, they really had very little. And they thought, we don't even know where we are. One man died out of starvation and exhaustion. And the crew were in such a state that actually Newton feared that they would turn to cannibalism. And he thought, if they're going to choose someone to eat, it's going to be me. Because he had made such, he was such a hated figure on this ship. He feared, he didn't want to close his eyes to sleep. He feared that there might be some accident. Not only that, but the captain started talking about, he, used to, he would say things like, we have a Jonah on board. And Newton knew the story of Jonah. And of course, he knew that they were referring to him. And for the first time in a long time, he started to pray. And he was very, very uneasy about praying. He thought to himself, how, how can I? How can I speak to God? But he did. And the ship drifted for 14 days. And finally, you know, when Newton started praying, very feebly and weakly prayed that maybe, if possible, the Lord might have some mercy. When he started praying, the wind changed and blew them favourably. And suddenly, you know, they, they realised that they were actually fairly close to land. They were actually off the coast of Ireland at this time. And as land came inside and they realised it was land, it was Ireland, um, they, they came in and the sailors rejoiced. And, but John Newton, for the first time, recognised God's mercy in his life. He realised that he had willfully blocked out other times when God had been so merciful. But this time, he recognised God's mercy. And when the other sailors got onto the shore and rushed into the alehouses and so on, John Newton turned up at church and he walked in very uneasily and sat in the back corner hoping that he wouldn't be noticed. He was, he was so ashamed of himself, his life and everything of, that he was, but he knew that God had delivered him. But he couldn't understand why there would be any mercy for such a one as him. Now, he was very earnest in his belief, uh, but he didn't understand anything. He saw himself as someone who was greatly indebted, greatly indebted to God, and he saw himself as a slave to God. And he would now live a righteous life. He would say his prayers, and perhaps then he would be accepted. So he embraced Christianity, and, uh, he, but he knew so very little about anything. He described himself as a pilgrim in a spiritual fog. He didn't know where he was going. He needed still to make a living. So even though he'd returned to England for a while, he was sent out again on another slave trading mission. And when he was on this mission, he had determined and vowed to himself that he would be a different man. And he said to himself, I'm, I'm going to do this properly. I'm going to be a good man. And so he started off like that. But as they left the coast of England and as they continued along this well-worn route for John Newton, it started with the little things. He stopped praying. He stopped reading the New Testament that he had with him. He uh, started to uh, join in in the, the things that the sailors were doing. He uh, started not reading at all, just the little things. And soon all those habits that he was trying to suppress gradually came back. And he, he was horrified at himself because by the time they reached Africa and he heard the familiar sounds of the drums and all of those old habits came back to the surface, except for one. He never blasphemed. But uh, he, he was so angry and horrified with himself. He thought, how is it? that I have been spared and witnessed firsthand God's mercy and I can't, 
can't live in the way I need to live. Why can't I do this? And he was so desperate and despairing. And finally, he came to the point where he prayed and he said to God, do to me as you will. I don't, I don't know what you want to do to me because I can't, I just can't seem to suppress my habits. He, at this time, he, uh, after these voyages, his faith was tiny. He didn't understand anything and he constantly battled with these old habits that he had. But at the age of 25, he finally asked Polly's hand in marriage and she accepted him, which he thought was amazing considering the man he was. Now, Polly herself was not a Christian either. She was a good woman. She went to church. That was it. Um, And John Newton himself was so vague in his faith. He believed in his heart, but he had never talked about his faith to anyone. And so he couldn't even hardly talk to Polly. But one day, and it was just after they were married, he was again going to be sent on a voyage and be away for months. And Polly, before the day before he went, said to him, well, how about you pray? And John Newton suddenly became all quivery. And he said, what, out loud? And Polly said, well, yes. And he, he said, well, uh, really? He had never prayed out loud, even on his own. He had never voiced it out for fear because his faith was so small and, and, and he, didn't, he didn't really want people to know about it. He just thought he would just show people by his good behaviour, but that wasn't really working either. And so it was very difficult for him, but he he sort of voiced out a little prayer with Polly. And this started to gradually change him. And he started to realise that he should pray for her. He should pray for her salvation. And that maybe that she would come to share some of this understanding of God. But then he thought, I don't really understand God either. But he did start to pray. As he continued, he actually continued the slave trade. And he continued this, uh, this work. And you've got to remember, in the context, nobody had yet ever questioned this. But he started to see his work in a different light. And he called it the dreadful effects of the slave trade. The violence, because there was a lot of violence. Those slaves, some of the slaves would rise up, try and kill people. And sometimes there were 200 slaves and only three sailors looking after them. So there was a lot of violence. And then the punishment... The, the way they treated the women. It was violence, anger, hatred, drunkenness. It, that was the life he was around with the slave trade. And he hated it. And soon he started praying and asked the Lord, is, is there a way to deliver me from this work? Or am I, do I have to do this work? And that's how he prayed. He didn't even understand that it, what he was doing was, was not right in the Lord's eyes. He just thought that perhaps he could be delivered from it. But uh, he wasn't immediately. And he joined, uh, he, he actually was a captain at this point. And uh, he, at the age of 25, he was captain of a ship called the Argyle. And they were out there on the sea. Um, and he, he actually met up with a man by the name of Job Lewis. This was someone from his past. The, one, the man that he had convinced to be an atheist way back when he was a lot younger. And he met him again. And suddenly, and Job Lewis was now under his command. And suddenly, Newton saw, it was like a mirror was held up, and Newton saw himself in Job Lewis. Job Lewis had embraced everything Newton had said about atheism and now was living in total freedom. He had a very loose reign. He, he did whatever he pleased, and Newton struggled to even control him. And, and Newton just saw a picture of himself. But not only that, he was so cut to the heart that it was his, he had done this to another soul. This man, Job Lewis, was a clean living, um, very devout, religious person. And Newton had corrupted him to this point. And Newton was there when Job actually got a fever and he died on that voyage. And he screamed. His last words were screams where he said, I'm descending to hell. And Newton wrote in his journal, Job Lewis died convinced of God but yet unchanged. And he was so cut to think that his life had had this influence on other people. On that same trip, he was at leisure 
somewhere in the coast of Africa waiting for uh, the ship to be reloaded. And many of the other sea captains were waiting. It was a, it was a port. And they used to have parties. And it was, it was their holiday time before the long voyage back to England. And so they were waiting around. And he was at this party and he met a man by the name of Alexander Clooney. Now, Alexander Clooney was another sea captain. He was Scottish. And soon in their discussion, Newton found that this man was a Christian and had been a Christian for a while. And this was rare. There were very, very few Christians who worked um, on, on, on boats and ships and so on. Now, he suddenly lost interest in all parties and he started to ask questions. And Alexander Clooney explained to him the scripture. And for the first time in his life, Newton experienced fellowship. And he suddenly, he, he, he started to see things in scripture. And Alexander Clooney explained everything to him. He went through the Gospels. And uh, suddenly Newton kind of understood that he had been trying with his own willpower to suppress all those bad habits. And he had been thinking completely wrongly about the scripture. He had thought that it was about his effort. It was about how he could somehow live a moral life and therefore please God. Clooney explained to him grace. And Newton was so overwhelmed by this. And he could not believe the amazing grace that was available for him. And he knew his sin. He knew that he was the lowest of the low. And yet he saw that there was this grace available. And this, that his righteousness, was, it was not about his righteousness, it was the Lord's righteousness that would change him. And all of this was things that Clooney told him over a period of a few weeks. And on that long journey back home, he had many months to digest all that Clooney had taught him. And the words of the Lord Jesus, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that really stuck with him because for the first time he understood that it was a personal relationship required and it wasn't about a distant judge. In his journal, Newton wrote to some, he wrote down everything he learned, but he wrote this last line and this kind of sums up what he learned. He wrote, My Lord, my life, my way, my end. And he was truly, truly saved at that point. Later on, he wrote in um, his journal, he said, My knowledge, uh, the knowledge of his love to me produced in me a return of love to him. And for the first time since he had encountered the Lord in a personal way um, on that storm during the Greyhound, he understood and he felt the joy of salvation. Now, Newton returned to England and he dropped the anchor of his ship, the Argyle. And as he came to shore, little did he know that this would mark the end but it would also mark the beginning. And that's the end of part one. <laughs>